the US Fed's own belief is that in order to bring inflation down to acceptable levels, they need to trigger a recession. There is a big disconnect between what's happened in the equity market and what the debt markets are telling right. us. The money that we see in the economy is not just the money that the central bank prints. This is narrow money. What we see is broad money. This year, first half US fiscal deficit was $1 trillion. So annualized is $2 trillion, which is double of last year. Hi, welcome to Open Dialogue by Access Bank. Open Dialogue is a forum where we bring experts to talk about topics related to global macroeconomics, finance, and banking, and to demystify these topics. In every session, we will take one topic and do a nuanced discussion around these, uh, the various elements of that topic. I am Samir Shetty, and I am your host for these sessions. I will be assisted by two stalwarts uh, in this effort. Joining me are Nilkant, Nilkant Mishra. Nilkant Mishra needs no introduction. Uh, Nilkant is uh, the chief economist at Axis Bank, and he is also part of the Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council, and he's been an advisor to many uh, government committees on these topics. I also have joining me today Ashish Gupta. Ashish is the chief investment officer at Axis Mutual Fund. He has almost 30 years of experience in tracking Indian capital markets. He's an expert in uh, global and Indian capital markets. Uh, he was still recently part of the SIDBI board and also is involved in a number of philanthropic activities uh, outside of his day job. Welcome Ashish and Nilkant and thanks for joining us today. Thanks. So today's topic is uh, about uh, most expected recession in the history of the world and is it imminent or is it is there a surprise in store for us so we will start with a little bit of a macro perspective uh, nilkan starting with you first if you can just talk about where the world economy is and you know why are people why is there so much expectation of a recession uh, today see uh, post covid the the central banks and governments across the world started innovating with policy making uh, for the first time in many, many years, uh, fiscal discipline was thrown to the winds. Uh, a lot of cash was distributed. And uh, that led to a very sharp and strong revival in many of the developed markets. But that also brought about a lot of inflation. Now, uh, inflation can be very destabilizing. So the policy priority right now is for uh, inflation to be brought down. The big debate is, can that be done without causing a recession? The Fed's own, the US Fed's own belief is that uh, in order to bring inflation down to acceptable levels, they need to trigger a recession. So they have been raising interest rates quite dramatically. Uh, so have other uh, developed market central banks. And whenever this happens in the past, uh, we've seen a recession, so which is why the moment the, the rate started going up, everyone started expecting a recession. The question is, why hasn't it happened so far? And uh, I think there, uh, there are two important factors. The first is that there is a fiscal monetary balance. Right? So, so you can manage economic cycles through fiscal routes or monetary routes. Basically, you can raise or uh, reduce the interest rates, or you can have the government spending more or less. Now, after the 2008-9 financial crisis, the 
developed world had adopted a tight fiscal stance. So they were trying to bring down fiscal deficits very rapidly and they were uh, uh, cutting interest rates very sharply. Right? So it was easy monetary, tight fiscal. This time, even as interest rates are being hiked up, they are actually uh, keeping the fiscal deficit at a very high level. So this is an easy fiscal stance. This, I think the markets had not anticipated and which is why you are seeing that the pace of decline in the economic activity is not as fast as was expected. The second factor is that interest rates impact economies with a lag. So uh, there are mortgages which are, you know, three-year fixed or five-year fixed rate. There are companies that have taken three-year loans in 2020 and 21. And those loans, as they come up for rollover, is when I think the cost or the impact of these interest rates will start showing up. So I think it was a bit premature for the markets and, and the world in general to anticipate a recession, but I don't think we can rule it out. Great, thanks. Uh, Ashish, coming to you, like uh, extending the same question to markets. So sure. one is obviously what's happening to the economy. Yes. But if you look at the markets, uh, there was this meme that I read which said, uh, bears have accurately predicted the last 10 of the last two bear markets, right? So, so what's happening there? Like what, what's holding the markets and what's, what's the situation there globally? Sure. And uh, I guess uh, you are referring to the U.S. markets in particular, right? Yep. And if you look at U.S. markets, I think uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, there has been a very large rally in the past few months. If you look at the S&P 500, it's up 10% uh, just in the last three months. From October lows, it's uh, probably up about 30%. Uh, NASDAQ is up about 25% uh, in the last three months. But uh, what is very interesting about this equity market rally is that it is very, very narrow, right? And in fact, it is narrower than even what we saw in the 2000 tech right. uh, bubble. Uh, Sorry, when, you say, when you say narrow, what exactly do you do? Uh, yeah, so uh, I mean that very few stocks are driving right. this rally. Right. So S&P 500, the rally I spoke about, out of 500 stocks in that index, Virtually all of the uh, move can be explained by move in just 31 stocks. Right. Right. So it's not that uh, there has been a revision in outlook of all the 500 constituent or the majority of the constituent. Right. Right. Uh, if you look at uh, the five main stocks, which is uh, the fame, Facebook, uh, Apple, Amazon, um, uh, your uh, Google, right, or Microsoft. Uh, these have contributed half of the rally, right. right? And this is probably coming out of the optimism on back of the transformation AI will cause uh, in economies as well as these companies, right? So some of the key beneficiary companies like NVIDIA is now trading at 40 times sales. Uh, another interesting aspect of this uh, US market rally is it is entirely driven by P multiple expansion. So it is not that earnings have been revised upward. So I don't think the uh, outlook on corporate earnings has changed as much, except for maybe a few sectors like energy because oil prices have gone up or the energy prices have gone up. Uh, but broad market earnings have not actually been revised upward. Uh, but all that has happened in the last three months is multiples have gone up. Right. What is uh, very interesting is that if we look at the other big market, which is the bond market, 
right? It is still distinctly saying and signaling a recession. Right. So there is a big disconnect between what's happened in the equity market and what the debt markets are telling right. us. And uh, you see the U.S. bond market, uh, the yield curve is still steeply inverted, right? The two-year bond is at 4.9%, the 10-year bond is about 4.2%, right? So there's a deep inversion and this inversion has uh, historically been uh, both a signal of recession and many economists believe that the yield curve itself inversion drives a recession, right? right? Because what do banks do? They borrow short and lend long, right? right? So if the yield curve is inverted, that means credit conditions will tighten. So actually, I have two follow-on questions. First is uh, this PE expansion, yes. you typically expect when monetary conditions are loose because then you know people are happy to pay more yes. uh, for future earnings. Yes. Uh, here it's happening in a contradictory environment where the monetary conditions are quite tight, interest rates are you know, really high and the PE is expanding. Uh, so will be helpful kind of just to get you sure. a little bit of perspective there. Second is this yield curve itself, you can explain for us yes. a little bit simplistically like what does this inversion mean and you know why should why does why is inversion so strongly correlated to sure. a recession? Okay, sure. So if I take the second question first, so uh, typically a, if you give someone money, right, you expect that uh, the more the time you're giving the money for, he'll ask for the higher interest rate, right? Uh, inversion of the yield curve means that money for shorter duration that is being given out is costing higher than yep. the money that is being given out for the longer period of time. Yes. This only happens when you believe that in future the interest rate will be lower than what it is today. Right. Right. And th that's why it is used as a signal for uh, recession. That means that market expects that uh, while interest rates are high today, they are 5.5%, uh, you know, right. but in future, the central bank will, will cut, cut rates. rates because a recession is coming or growth will be lower. Right. So they will cut rates to stimulate. So that is why someone uh, wants to lock in three-year rates even uh, at a level which is lower than what the current rates are. Right. Right? Uh, the other aspect of this is uh, if the yield curve is inverted, what I mentioned, uh, it is probably a cause, right? Because uh, uh, typically all lending institutions borrow, uh, borrow at short the and short lend term, yeah. right? Because they are taking deposits and then they lend it for the longer term. So if it is costing more to them to borrow uh, compared to uh, the yield they will get when they lend, uh, then they will be more reluctant to give out credit. Right? As they are uh, more reluctant to out, give out credit, that itself will cause a slowdown uh, in the economy. And so going back to your first The PE expansion versus the macroeconomic yeah. uh, monetary so, conditions. Right? Yes, yeah, so I think uh, you are absolutely right that typically it happens when uh, uh, interest rates are lower and uh, monetary conditions are tight. In this case, as I mentioned, uh, it has been very narrowly driven because everyone has now looked at only a few companies as the key beneficiary of this uh, potential AI revolution. Right, right. right. So all the money is getting concentrated into those few right, names. Right. That's why, as I mentioned, the rally is very narrow. And if you look last 60 years history, uh, such narrow rallies actually don't end well. Right. Understood. Great. Coming back, Nilkan, to the US, uh, US kind of economy and recession and so on and so forth, right? There's one, one report I read, it's from Bank of America, where they've looked at their own deposit base. And uh, 
uh, what they put out is that if you look at the median uh, balance in the savings account or the checking account as they call it in the US, balances as late as April 23, which is two, three months back, were between 40 to 70 percent higher compared to just before the onset of the epidemic, of the, of the corona uh, pandemic, right? So, which means if somebody had 100 rupees or 100 dollars, they now have at least 140, maybe 170. And the lower the income segment, the higher the uh, balance. So, in like, what recession? Like, if people have 40% more money than they had four years back when the markets were booming and economy was looking quite good and so on and so forth. What explains this and where is this coming from and where, what do you, how do you see this panning out? The savings had gone up significantly yep. uh, when the government threw out massive tolls. Yep. Right? So they they gave a lot of money into the to the people, and those those were saved. And uh, those savings are now depleting. So we had done some arithmetic just last week, and the pace at which the savings are eroding, we will take another five months to come back to uh, to where the aggregate savings were um, before COVID. Right. And uh, which is why I think so. So what has happened is that services consumption has come back to what we call the trend line. So if it was sort of growing at this pace, it had fallen. Now it is sort of coming back up to the trend line. This is, in the you're US. talking of? The U.S. savings, uh, services consumption. Services consumption before it, pandemic and after. Yeah. So this yeah. was the pre-pandemic trend line. Right. It had dipped. In the pandemic. In the and pandemic. Then now it's, and yeah. now it is. Now it is close to that. Right. Goods, because, you know, when people are stuck at home, they don't consume services, yep. they consume more goods. So, goods had also seen this during the lockdowns, but then it flared up. Right. But it is still well above the trend line. Right. So, people are consuming a lot more than they used to. Right. Uh, which, as you can imagine, is not sustainable. Right. Um, and that's the intention, to bring down demand by raising interest rates. So, we think that the, the savings, uh, which, is, which is the reason why uh, you are seeing that the economy is not slowing down as rapidly. And remember that this is where the government's fiscal stance, yep. the fact that the government is still effectively printing money and and spending right so they are they are uh, uh, their tax collections are uh, not going as fast as their spending is going and uh, now you have seen uh, fitch cutting the yeah the absolutely US, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and rating and it's something we've been flagging for several months now that uh, the us debt to gdp which is the measure of debt sustainability is uh, likely to keep going up for the next decade right and this is something that uh, is in, in, in theory unsustainable right. and uh, something which is in theory unsustainable will at, at some point become in practice unsustainable as well. To, to add to that point on, on uh, the monetary stance, see in addition to raising interest rates, the developed market central banks are also reducing the quantity of money. Correct. Right, the amount of money <laughs> in, the, in the economy, it's called quantitative tightening. Now uh, QT or quantitative tightening. Uh, so, from the peak in the US, uh, the money supply has actually come down by nearly $1.2 trillion. But when the Silicon Valley Bank failed uh, and, and the Fed allowed small banks to start tapping into their overnight uh, uh, reserves, they, uh, the money supply has actually gone up. And you will notice that it is around that time that a lot of these rallies uh, started to happen. That is around that time that a lot of the emerging markets started getting inflows as well. So uh, what we have noticed in the last couple of weeks is that uh, uh, that has started to taper down again. Remember that the stance of the Fed is that they will continue to bring down the quantity of money for the foreseeable future. 
and uh, so this uh, interim measure where uh, the, the banks had to be kept alive uh, and therefore inadvertently or rather uh, they were forced to in, uh, inject more money into the system which is also shown up in showed up in a lot of the market rally that we have seen great so two follow up questions in can first is if you can just explain this quantitative easing and quantitative tightening like what does it mean what does it mean that there is more money in the system if you can just explain a little bit for yeah, no, so, simple words uh, so quantitative easing means that we just print money yeah. right that that what what the uh, what any central bank does it could be the reserve bank of india it could be the bank of england it could be the ecb it could be the fed they uh, decide to so if suppose the quantity of money in the in the us economy is say 15 trillion dollars and the fed says that every month i'm going to buy 100 billion dollars of bonds and the fed uh, like any central bank in the world has the right to print money right so they can create money out of thin air and uh, so as they buy those bonds and keep them on the balance sheets it is quantitative easing so basically you are increasing the money supply right and, and so basically the fed is buying bonds and giving out money and that money basically they because the fed is the entity that prints money they just print and they give it they don't need to they don't need yes. to have any income and so on and so forth exactly and so the fed's balance sheet quote unquote is 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 growing yeah so on the on the fed's uh, asset side they are holding those bonds yep. and the liabilities are the, the money the cash that they have printed absolutely and and so this balance the fed's balance sheet keeps expanding right so what happened during the uh, uh, during the covid pandemic uh, as Uh, uh both fiscal and monetary uh, easing had happened to protect the economy from damage uh the fed's balance sheet ballooned yep now when inflation went out of control uh, they promised that they would do quantitative tightening correct that they had perhaps printed too much money right and they are now going to bring down by 85 billion dollars a month so that process is now about one year uh, into uh, we are one year into that process and uh, uh, and that process as it continues you will see that the quantum of dollars uh, available and remember that the dollar based cost of funding is what uh, uh, is it affects not just the us yep. but uh, a lot of other company countries as well so many of the emerging markets which are dependent and they they effectively have to track the rate cycles of the us dollar so as the quantity of dollars available keeps shrinking it's going to continue to cause problems for some of the emerging markets right and so again on that point nilkan like one of the statistic i had heard was that during covid the fed printed 9 trillion dollars or something of that nature that 9 trillion dollars obviously still making its way through the economy they may be pulled out a trillion so in your sense when does kind of this start uh, you know to start to show up start uh, to show so, up india so uh, the the failure of svb was a sign of this right that it it happened because of some of these reasons right um see to to add a layer of complexity to our current uh, discussion the money that we see in the economy is not just the money that the central bank prints yep uh this is narrow money what we see is broad money right, right? so we see m2 or m3 it's called m0 right what the fed prints is called m0 this is m2 or m3 i mean m3 and what's the difference what what kind of yeah so sometimes like in india uh, m3 is five times m0 right so then comes the basic question of so how is this extra money coming from yep. right so if if uh, if the rbi has injected 40 lakh crores yeah uh, 40 trillion rupees how are there 200 trillion rupees in the economy 
And that's where banks like ours have a role to play. Right. right? So uh, a bank can create money out of nothing. So so if you if you are it sounds very dangerous by the way. <laughs> <laughs> banks are uh, yeah, but banks that that's 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 a that's that's the reason why central banking had to be created. Right. Right, because uh, banks, by almost by definition, there's a lot of make believe that happens. Right. right. <laughs> so, uh, so, so if if say today as a bank, I give you a loan. That's just I give you a hundred rupee loan, and now there's hundred extra rupees in your deposit. And now, as you start spending it, that money starts rotating. Right. So, when a bank gives out a loan, it is effectively creating money. Right. Now, but presumably they have some deposits against which they are giving out the loan, right? Or right. but that is a deposit. Right. The deposit that I that is there in your account yeah. is the is, is so when is, sorry when you give a loan right so let's say it. you take hundred dollars at deposit right on back of that you give a loan uh, um, so I take a deposit from Nilkant I'm bank I give you a loan right so now there's hundred dollars in his deposit hundred dollars in your deposit account so now there's two hundred dollars yeah right so basically hundred dollars of credit yeah. uh, and hundred dollars of deposit yeah. Right. This, so, by the way, is the most counterintuitive thing that, you know, when I started doing banking, this was, I always thought like, you know, you take deposit and you give a loan against it. <laughs> Just to kind of get this into my head took me a long time. That is yeah. how the PNL works, yeah. but that's now how money creation works. Yeah. Right? So now coming yeah. back to the first question yeah. about uh, monetary tightening. So what happens is that as, as, as Ashish was saying, that as you invert the real curve, so the, the yield curve is basically that, you know, if you have an x-axis and y-axis, you have the interest rates. So, you, this is the duration. So, this is a one-year interest rate, this is a two-year, three-year, five-year, ten-year, whatever, right? Now, generally, if you are giving someone loan for a ten-year period, you would demand a higher interest rate. Yes. There's more uncertainty, right? So, which is why it's an upwards. This is the normal uh, yield curve. curve. Inverted yield curve means that for a shorter duration, as Ashish was explaining, interest rates are higher than they are for the longer duration. Now, when the yield curve is inverted, uh, the banks are not incentivized to give out loans. And which is why the money multiplier starts to shrink as well. Right. So while the Fed may be taking out $85 billion a month, the reduction in the, the money supply M2 that the US economy sees is actually much faster than that. Right. Right. So, uh, uh, so therefore, I think that uh, when we are thinking about the impact on the economy, it's not going to be that all of that extra $8 trillion has to, has be to come out, out yeah. uh, before the impact yeah. starts showing. Yeah. Because the multiple is eight, then if they've taken out one, then maybe already kind of nine have. Uh, no, no. So, so see, remember that the the U.S. economy has also grown in nominal terms. Right. Absolutely. The U.S. economy is, uh, in real terms, among the only economies that is back to its pre-pandemic path. Right. Right. So if this was the pre-pandemic path. It dipped, then it went up, and then it is now back, or actually it is now trending towards pre-pandemic path. Every other economy is well below. Even our economy, right. which is among the best performing economies, is actually well below the pre-pandemic. Right. In nominal terms, the US economy is above its pre-pandemic path. Right. So, every economy needs a certain quantity of money for it to function. Right. right. For people to buy and sell stuff, companies to buy and sell stuff. So, as the nominal GDP has also grown, so it will grow into the money supply. So, you don't really need to take out all of that. All of that, yeah. Right. So, it, it, you can see it as you printed it in bulk in 2020-21. Uh, maybe it'll take three, four years for the economy if you had not started sucking it out, and if you had not done monetary tightening, uh, you need, didn't need to print for three, four years. Uh, but now that you are doing QT and uh, uh, banks are also trying to slow down their credit, uh, maybe it'll take one and a half years, two years for the tightening to start showing up. Right. What also happens is something where 
do not want to complicate things a bit more, uh, is risk appetite. Right. right? So, uh, so people, if they are uncertain about the future, they will refuse to take loans. Yep. Right. And uh, so as the, so, so far, of course, you know, everyone was afraid of recession. People have been postponing decisions. So that is there. <coughs> Maybe for a three to six month period, that will reverse. People will say, oh, there's no recession. We are going to get into a soft landing in the US. So you can bring down inflation without causing a recession in the US. So let's start spending again. So which is why I think the the period at which or the time uh, at which recession occurs is now consensus has pushed it out to the first half of the next of year. Of next year, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody seems to have kind of pushed out their consensus belief. Okay. This uh, Just going back to one of the points you mentioned, Nilkan, which is the debt GDP ratio in the US and kind of how that, like, every year there is this uh, debt ceiling that they raise and there is a you know huge political standoff against it and so on and so forth. Where does, you said it's not sustainable, but how does this end and where does this end? What does it mean for, of course, the US, but also like folks like us? So, uh, no, it's very hard to say where it ends. Uh, what is easier to explain is why it's happening. Right. See, from the, from the political perspective, this ticks all the boxes for the current administration. In the right. US. Right. So, uh, uh, if you notice what happened uh, after the the 2008-9 crisis was that it took seven, seven and a half years for employment to come back to the pre-crisis level. Uh, here, we are already at you know record low levels of unemployment. So it has happened very fast. Uh, the second is that uh, the wage growth in the bottom quartile is now higher than the wage growth in the top quartile, meaning yep. the bottom 25% of income earners their salaries are growing faster, faster yeah. than that of the richest people. Uh, third, what had happened in 2008-9, uh, after 2008-9, is that because you cut the interest rate so much, so financial wealth went up yep. right, because equity prices went up, everything, real estate prices went up, everything. And uh, uh, so global wealth to GDP went from 3.7 to 4.9, so it worsened wealth inequality. Now, all of these are against the principles that the Democratic Party in the U.S. stands for, right? So, what they are seeing now is that unemployment ratios for, say, high schoolers are now comparable to the unemployment ratio for the overall economy. Earlier, they used to be much higher. So, it is ticking all the boxes uh, from a political perspective. So, this will continue to happen till the time that the markets uh, give up on it, right? And uh, this is where... Uh, for, for, for the audience, maybe you can Google the new Triffin dilemma. Right. Um, it's, it's a long explanation, so I won't get into it here. But um, uh, that the fact that so many foreigners, so many non-U.S. corporations and individuals own the U.S. Treasury as a safe asset. But if the, the U.S. government's ability to back that up with tax collections in the future is that belief starts to get shaken, then there will be a refusal by some of these entities, which is why the Fitch down rate was, well, I mean, I don't think it's material, material in terms yeah. of changing it right now, here and now, but at some point it will become unsustainable. Right. And so, Ashish, what, like this, I think what Neelkan is talking about is almost the reversal of the K-shaped recovery. You know, the K is becoming a plus sign or whatever, right, or a T. Sure. What does that mean from a long-term perspective for equity, equity markets? So, I think uh, for the equity markets, uh, there are certainly uh, challenges uh, um, in the US, right? 
so I think uh, uh, as I mentioned, you have one sort of performance coming from these technology companies uh, uh, who are, are not going to just uh, cater to the US demand, but the global demand for their products and services. Right? But if you look at uh, the consumption companies uh, in the US, uh, etc., they are not really seeing uh, that kind of recovery. There have been, in fact, uh, record number of bankruptcies in the, in the US. Right. So while uh, uh, we are saying that uh, there has been a huge influx of money and uh, uh, over the year, but uh, this year the number of bankruptcies in the US has also gone up. Wow. Uh, okay. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, we had uh, one very large uh, bankruptcy in uh, one of the largest truck operators in the US uh, just last just, week. Yeah, last week, yeah. Right. So, I think uh, we have to differentiate between the various components of the US economy, right? So, if you look at aggregate demand, it comes from the household sector, it comes from the corporate sector, and it comes from the government sector. Right. right? Uh, if you, uh, as you mentioned about... Uh, Household balances, yes, consumer demand has certainly been more resilient this year than what was expected. Some of the excess savings may be the cause of it. Uh, uh, some of the uh, kind of uh, boost post Silicon Valley Bank may have been the cause of it. Uh, but if you see uh, US SMEs, I think they are still feeling the pinch uh, of the regional bank crisis. So, if you look at the credit conditions index in the U.S., that continues to tighten. Uh, if you see uh, U.S. SME sentiment index, that continues to week after week uh, uh, trend downwards. Uh, Neil Kant earlier mentioned about the fiscal stimulus. I think uh, uh, that also has been a big driver in the first half of this year. Right? Uh, to just give you some numbers on that, uh, this year, first half U.S. fiscal deficit was one trillion dollars. Right? Wow. So annualized is two trillion dollars, which is double of last year. Wow! Right? And hundred percent. Hundred percent. In uh, uh, as a proportion of GDP, that means there's excess three percent of GDP fiscal deficit this year. Wow! Right. So uh, no wonder recession did not come this year. There right. were three percent of GDP fiscal. Uh, uh, boost that uh, the economy got, right? Uh, going forward next year, even if let's say you go back to your 1 trillion, right? And uh, uh, we have to look at the delta, right? The marginal change, right? So if 2 trillion again becomes 1 trillion, it's not that they do away with the fiscal deficit. They're but just the, reducing uh, the amount. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, uh, so that will be a 3% of GDP headwind to wow. next year compared to this year. Wow. Right. So, uh, I think there are certainly challenges. So, even if the consumer demand is there and uh, the uh, point on politics that Neilkan touched about is also very relevant, right? Because next year is uh, US elections, right? And uh, uh, at one hand, uh, no, no incumbent wants to get into election uh, with In a recession, yeah. right? Uh, but uh, uh, the fact is that uh, U.S. Uh, government budget will come up for voting in October, right? So while the debt ceiling got raised, uh, the uh, 
money that the government needs to spend will be available to it only when the budget gets passed uh, and it starts sometime in October. And uh, there I am sure uh, there will be a lot of pushback from the Republicans because they don't want uh, the uh, fiscal boost to continue. So I think uh, there is very interesting uh, six months ahead of us right. and, uh, uh, and I actually uh, believe that uh, its uh, recession has not been averted but delayed. Right. Understood. Great. So shifting gears a little bit, the, in the global financial crisis, uh, China was the growth driver for the world, right? And yes. like, I guess almost for the last 15 years, they've, they are the engine that has been uh, driving the world while the rest has recovered. Uh, off late, particularly post-pandemic, they seem to have hit like a roadblock. So what's happening there? Is it a temporary phenomenon that, you know, the tiger is crouching and waiting to jump or are there structural issues and that, you know, tiger has become old maybe? You went the dragon. The dragon. <laughs> so, uh, uh, see, I, in, in, at this stage, I, I like to split growth into three parts. Right. So, there is uh, GDP growth or economic growth can come from labor input, capital input, and uh, what we call total factor productivity. Right? So, productivity growth. Right. And uh, so, to give you an example, if, if say, I'm in my research team here, if I need to increase the quantum of, quantum of research that we put out, I can add to my research team. So that's labor input. Yep. I can give them access to databases, faster computers, a lot of AI algorithms or whatever. That is right. putting money to work. So that is capital input. Right. Getting them to work smarter with the labor and the capital that they have is productivity. If you measure the Chinese economy on these fronts, the labor input is going to be negative because their demographic decline is actually quite accelerated. It's much faster than had been expected even five years back. Right. right? So the number of births is collapsing. Uh, the number of people of working age shrinking very rapidly. Uh, total factor productivity was actually negative even before the pandemic. Wow. And this takes us back to... And that's quite content. Like you would assume that China, because of so much technological advancement that has happened, the productivity would have been growing, but you are saying actually it was not even before. Correct. So uh, you can increase labor productivity by injecting a lot more of capital. Right. But if you look at the combined productivity of capital and labor, then, then that number was negative. And I'll explain to you what that means. Right. See, the uh, in in any any government, uh, and this is a framework that we'll find useful even when we think about India. You know, in any any society. Uh, you know, there are basically two power centers now. 200, 300 years back, there was also religion, but today there's just business and there's politics. Right. The state, which is the government, and there is business. How the power balance between the two works is very important uh, for, for uh, the economic growth and, and the structure of the economy. Now, the, in, in any communist country, uh, the primary driver of policy is what they call the principal contradiction. Basically that this is the main problem in the economy which the government has to solve. When Deng Xiaoping uh, started to reform China in the late 70s and then it was institutionalized in the, in the, the constitution in 1982 uh, saying that the, it, uh, the principal contradiction is that the people desire to be rich but the current structure cannot make them rich, so we have to change. Uh, and that is when the state willingly took a back seat and right. allowed business to, to, flourish. To, uh, to, to flourish. 
after 2012-13, I think there was a severe uh, uh, debate within, within the Communist Party along with the change of leadership. And it so happened that they realized that the business was becoming too powerful. Right. And that the state had to increase its power again. Which is why you would have seen that the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, the, government, the PSUs of China, they started gaining share back again. Now, and also you had all the Jack Ma and, you know, events of that nature. That started well. happening in 2018-19 as well, where uh, the state really felt threatened that these are, these are really rich people yep. running large businesses and they are openly challenging uh, the state. Now, when you, uh, when you transition like that, right, so, so you, you transition and even look at the real estate problems, uh, the way yep. the current real estate problems, the way the state is addressing them is by uh, uh, getting the state-owned enterprises to buy out those assets. Right? So that prevents failure. But remember that in state hands, in, in government hands, the productivity of capital and labor is generally lower. So, so TFP, or total productivity in China, 2014 to 19, was falling at 1.5% a year. Right. And your, basic, your contention is that that was happening because power, uh, kind of the production was moving from private hands to state hands and state hands it was are a major driver of understood. That. And the second is that, uh, so, so the growth was completely coming from capital injection. Right. Right. So, uh, real estate construction, yep. infrastructure construction, uh, a, a lot of automation, robotization, you know, so lots of, and, and uh, complete domination. Now you're seeing the same thing happen in the battery ecosystem, what earlier happened in wind and solar. So, now what is happening is that, and remember that nearly a third of China's goods exports are by multinationals operating in China. Right. right? They are not by Chinese companies. Right. And, and of course, 20 years back, it was 60-70%. Now, if you look that for the next five years, so the demographic decline, decline continues, the stance of the government is not changing. So basically, the TFP growth will be at best the same or zero or negative. And capital formation needs to slow down because real estate investments are slowing down. Yep. The local government financing vehicles are no longer active. Uh, I mean, they cannot leverage themselves more. And so they are going through a severe growth concern. Now, the only solution to this is, and remember that, you know, when, when demographic decline happens, meaning that uh, your, your dependency ratios are starting to go up, if there is no uh, uh, state support so suppose someone is like 50 years old or 55 years old and there is not enough pension assets. So if you, if you uh, plot pension assets as a percentage of GDP, China is actually somewhat lower than India. Wow. Now, if you are, if, if you are at that stage, so then as people get closer to retirement, they are actually trying to save more. They are not com confident enough because of the severe, severe demographic shift. So the only way to counter this is for the government to, to trigger consumption growth. Right which means that you have to hand over cash to people right, right? in some form or in some form right? yeah. there, there are there are more stable ways of doing it like providing better health insurance better providing pen, better pension assets so that they feel secure but th that's a slow and steady type of if you give a cash injection you cause inflation and which they are again because it's destabilizing for any economy which they don't want to do so this expectation that people have or markets have had that china whenever it gets into trouble it's going to re-stimulate is something that uh, I've always been uncomfortable with. Not always, meaning the last couple of uh, year or so, I've been very uncomfortable that it's not going to happen. And that's unfortunately playing out. So, uh, so this, is, this is negative for uh, many other places other than China. Remember that China is now very large. 
right? So, uh, total goods demand in China is two-thirds as large as the U.S. goods demand. Wow. On a per capita basis, of course, it's lower, but the Chinese population is four times larger than that of the U.S. And so, if Chinese goods demand slows down, it creates problems for many people. And that, when we discuss Europe, I guess, it'll become important. Europe was a, I mean, China was a very important destination. Very, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it was very important for Japan. Uh, and, and so these economies then start to struggle. Uh, commodity suppliers, like in many emerging markets, which are not linked to new energy solutions, will start to struggle because a lot of their growth was happening because of demand from China. So, uh, so yeah, I don't expect Chinese demand to really pick up anytime soon. Great, thanks. I think we'll do a special session just on China because it's a fairly complicated and large topic. So, Ashish, you're you are talking about this uh, balance sheet problem in China. If you can explain just what that means. So, on the balance sheet, uh, 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 we have two sets of balance sheet. One is the bank balance sheet and the corporate balance sheet. Right. right? Uh, if the corporate balance sheet carries too much leverage, right? Uh, there's a question about whether the corporate will sustain or will be able to fully service its debt right. or not. And these loans that the corporates have taken come on the asset side of the bank's balance sheet. Right. These are the loans they have given up. Right. So the market believes that these assets that the banks carry are not going to be fully realizable in their value. Right. Right. And that is why... Because the, the corporate will not pay. Will not pay. Yeah. And that is why uh, uh, the equity value of the bank is being put at a fraction of its stated book value. Right. And you said it's about quarter of... Uh, yeah, so, so currently, system. yeah, price to book on average for Chinese banks is 0.25. Wow, which means if they've raised 100 rupees of equity, the marketing market is now valuing them at 25 rupees. Yes, so the amount of equity they have raised and accumulated profit, which is the book value, yeah. uh, uh, and currently the market value is one-fourth of that. Wow. Understood. So, I think that is why markets don't necessarily believe that Chinese market is very cheap and uh, they are uh, uh, very gung-ho about the China, given uh, the growth outlook. The other thing that we are starting to see, because of geopolitical reasons, there is certain <coughs> level of discomfort certain international investors are starting to have towards China. Yep. And particularly American funds, uh, uh, are questioning or are being nudged to look at what is their capital outlay in China. Uh, and we are seeing not only incremental cap capital outlay coming down, but some fund actually pulling out capital from China as yeah. well. We saw Sequoia as an example. Uh, yes, right. So, so I think uh, people uh, are very uncertain about those geopolitics as well. And... Uh, that will have huge implication for uh, 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 other markets because uh, China had been a big recipient uh, of global capital flows. Uh, of course, uh, uh, it's been much larger than most other emerging markets, but also because uh, there were a lot of capital investment happening, the uh, influx of capital was also very large. Sounds like a great, uh, great conversation. Thank you, Neelkant, and thank you, Ashish. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoyed as much as sure. I enjoyed learning <laughs> from you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much.